0: Hello, welcome to The War Pod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines, rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Abigail Watson, Research Manager at the Oxford Research Group, And in this episode, we'll be joined by Mary Harper, BBC Africa's editor and author of two books on Somalia, Getting Somalia Wrong, Faith, War and Hope in a Shattered State, and Everything You Have Told Me is True, The Many Faces of Al-Shabaab. And we'll put links to both books in the show notes. In this episode, we will discuss Al-Shabaab and the implications of COVID-19 for Somalia. Enjoy the show. So, Mary, would you mind starting just for those who aren't familiar with the context of Somalia, just outlining the current situation in the country and who Al-Shabaab are?
1: Somalia is a country that's basically been in a state of conflict for the past 30 years, and it's been pretty much uninterrupted. Different kinds of conflict have affected the country over these decades. And at the moment, probably the most dominant fighting force in Somalia is Al-Shabaab, which is an Islamist group linked to Al-Qaeda. There's also a smaller group of uh, Islamic State militants in Somalia who uh, are linked to the wider Islamic State group. But Al-Shabaab is the sort of biggest fighting force at the moment in terms of opposing the government and foreign forces who are based there. And it basically imposes a draconian form of Islam. It is not only a a group that carries out attacks and assassinations, it actually governs huge parts of the country, so it's quite unusual in that sense. And even more unusual is that it's been in existence for more than a decade, so it has great durability and it's showed amazing nimbleness because whenever it faces a threat or a challenge from uh, different myriad groups of security forces, both local, regional and international, it just changes the way it operates. So it's been able to survive all this time really since around 2006,
0: 2007. And um, Can you just briefly describe your own work following the group and in Somalia more generally?
1: Yeah, as um, the BBC's Africa editor, I've been covering Somalia. That's my country of sort of special interest. I've got a special obsession with Somalia that started way back in the 90s. So I've been going to Somalia and reporting on the situation there since the early 90s. So I've got quite a long history of involvement in the country. And it's a place that I love. It's a place that I get frustrated by, both in the fact that it can't seem to get out of a situation of conflict, but also by the way it's represented often in the Western media or understood by foreign governments, particularly uh, Western ones, because as well as all the trouble that there is in Somalia, and there's plenty of that, there's also loads of really, really positive things about it, and I always feel they get missed out. So that was really why I wrote my first book about Somalia. Uh, Since Al-Shabaab has come into existence, I have followed that group very closely, partly because Al-Shabaab, in its fairly early days, called me up. It phoned me up when I was actually shopping in Covent Garden, when I was meant to be at work. And I took this phone call and I I was told that this was a member of Al-Shabaab. But I, as a journalist, you've always got to be very, very careful with who people calling you and claiming to be certain representing certain movements so I immediately put the phone down uh got the number and then spoke to a colleague a trusted colleague in Mogadishu, who verified that yes indeed that was an Al-Shabaab phone number and that person was Al-Shabaab so that was the beginning in a way of a kind of relationship a very uncomfortable unpleasant relationship uh, that developed between myself and the group because basically they contacted me a lot they told me a lot about not just the attacks that they were carrying out. But over time, I suppose we developed a relationship of trust in a way, very uncomfortable trust, but that it was there. So they gave me far more insights into the way they thought, the way they operated, their frustrations, their kind of daily life. So I suppose I had a very intimate, close-up picture of how al-Shabaab operates. So I have been following it very closely since it it, it came about in in the mid 2000s
0: and I I just want to quickly say how much I enjoyed getting Somalia wrong because I feel like it does it does highlight many of the things that aren't covered in mainstream media when it comes to covering the conflict in Somalia unfortunately our organisation focuses on conflict and so all my questions for today are focused on conflict so I just I think one of the the challenges that you've mentioned most recently in a, a recent episode of the BBC's From Our Own Correspondent, you noted the the problems of demobilisation of former fighters, and you you were speaking from a centre that was trying to get men and boys back into the community. I'm interested to know what are some of the key challenges to that demobilisation process.
1: Yeah, I, I was given this amazing opportunity. I've I've had two amazing opportunities to visit these uh, centres for kind of low ranking. Uh, members of Al Shabaab, I suppose, you describe them as the foot soldiers, or some of them did quite banal jobs that you might not think about. Uh, but given that Al Shabaab is a governing force, it needs mechanics, it needs administrators, it needs uh, people who work in its in its um, medical centres, etc. So um, those are the kinds of people who were in these centres. I went to one in. Um, the regional capital of southwest state, by Doha, and then more recently I went to a larger, more kind of organized one in the capital, Mogadishu. And in terms of the challenges, there are many, and the first one is actually letting people in al-Shabaab know that there is an amnesty for those uh, low-ranking fighters, and that there are facilities for them to go to where they will be kept in relative safety, because anyone who leaves Al Shabaab, defects from Al Shabaab, is basically going to be killed by Al Shabaab if they find them. And so that's the first challenge: is communicating uh, that these places exist. And the um, centres working in, in, in conjunction with the international community, they have worked very hard to try to spread the word they have leaflets they've now got a telephone number that people can ring to get information and that's what one of the things when I was speaking to these uh, defectors and I spent a long time I was given several hours to talk to them and they really opened up to me and that was one of the first things they said was that even when they kind of realized that al-Shabaab was not the group it had set out to be what they thought it was when they joined, they they didn't really know how to leave. And so when they heard about uh, the amnesty, when they heard about these centres, it gave them courage to leave. So that was one of the main challenges. And then the actual leaving in itself is incredibly difficult, obviously. And there's usually a long trek out of al-Shabaab territory. And I remember meeting one of the defectors in Baidoa, who had walked, he said he walked for days and days, and that he showed me the soles of his feet, and they were completely lacerated because he'd been walking for so long through such difficult uh, terrain. And then once they actually get to these centers, they say the main thing that's really challenging for them to the beginning, um, as one of them put it, he said, it's like Al-Shabaab inserted their SIM card into my brain. And I need to kind of take that SIM card out and have my whole brain sort of rewired so that I stop thinking in the way that they want me to think. So, um, but the centers work really hard. They have psychologists, they have religious people who come in to explain to them that there's are other forms of Islam than that uh, that Al-Shabaab professes. So there are many, many, many challenges. But what I did find quite encouraging is that these uh, young people, mainly, some of them were older than I expected, you know, they they seem to embrace uh, the education that they're offered there, both in terms of things like literacy and maths, language but also they're given skills so they'll be trained as mechanics or tailors or barbers drivers and then they work very hard to find these individuals jobs outside in the community but that's another challenge because they're often not trusted by by their local communities and many of them actually decide not to go home to their villages or small towns but to stay in Mogadishu where they're more anonymous.
0: It's it sounds like there's a number of lessons that could be learned for other context conflicts facing the same problems of integrating former fighters and building up that trust once again with the the local community i guess these efforts like many other efforts in countries that are already at the brink in terms of conflict and resource scarcity are now facing an additional pressure with COVID-19. I'm interested to know how you think, how well you think Somalia is prepared for COVID-19 and what you think the impact of the virus will be. Somalia in terms
1: of its health facilities is absolutely not prepared for a big outbreak of coronavirus. Uh, The hospitals are basically shattered by all those decades of war. There are some that have been recently built, for example, a very large Turkish hospital. But if you think about the number of people uh, in the country, and if you get a big outbreak, they won't be able to cope. They don't have the ventilators and other equipment that's required. Uh, Another massive challenge for Somalia is that so many people live in um, camps for displaced people, and they're crammed together in these sort of makeshift shelters made out of bits of cloth and plastic and sticks and there's no way they can um, practice social distancing it's kind of cruel to even suggest to them that that's what they should do because they can't do that and also another basic preventative measure, uh, washing hands regularly for 20 seconds with with soap and water is something else that's unavailable to them. So those are the big challenges. But like many African countries, Somalia was quick to uh, react to the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And so it uh, unlike some European companies, uh, countries that kind of, let, kind of let it go for a while, they have tried to impose uh, a, a kind of lockdown uh, and so on. So at the moment, even though it seems that the number of coronavirus cases are higher than the official figures, it hasn't taken off like wildfire as yet. But if it does, then it's going to be a catastrophe for Somalia.
0: And in the longer term, do you have any concerns about what COVID-19 may mean for governance in the country? In some countries, we've seen the virus used as an opportunity to increase a state's own power or even just um, that that states have aggressively implemented COVID-19 measures further alienating civilian populations. Do you have concerns that this could happen or is happening in Somalia?
1: You don't hear as much about that as you do in places like Kenya or South Africa, which people consider to be kind of politically developed, pretty sophisticated countries, where in both those places people have been shot dead for... uh, being on balconies or being on their verandas uh, during lockdowns. Um, In Somalia, you've heard some instances of things like that, but you don't get the sense that the state is using this to exert more control massively. But that's because it can't. It's incapable of doing so because it effectively controls almost no territory, even the capital Mogadishu. Al-Shabaab is present there in a more hidden way. But as Al-Shabaab says, it has a parallel government even in Mogadishu. So even if the government wanted to exert uh, an increased, more more, uh, draconian form of authority, it doesn't really have the resources to do so. So that might be something that Somalia will escape from, even though I can imagine the state using coronavirus as an excuse to clamp down on public gatherings or any kind of protest or to sort of marshal people into behaving into a certain way that it wants them to. But it's interesting, al-Shabaab itself has come out with statements about the coronavirus, saying that it's been brought into the country by the infidel uh, foreigners. And that's something that a lot of Somalis kind of believe. You get all sorts of myths around coronavirus, such as Muslims can't catch coronavirus, only Chinese people have coronavirus. So in some ways, their beliefs about the sort of general beliefs about coronavirus mirror some of the things that al-Shabaab has been saying in its statements about the virus.
0: And so how... How do you think then, given that, that that the virus will impact Al-Shabaab? Will it it sort of help or hinder the organisation? Because I guess on the one side, they've got the propaganda war that they might be winning, but they're also an organisation that governs territory and has their own problems with regulating and stopping the spread. Yeah,
1: one one would imagine that if coronavirus gets into Al-Shabaab territory in a big way, then they're not going to be able to treat people with the disease properly. And it's, if that happens, it might become a little bit like uh, during times of drought, when um, al-Shabaab has not done particularly well, despite its propaganda, especially during the famine of 2011, it lost a great deal of popular support because it did, it hampered access of humanitarian, some humanitarian agencies anyway, into their territory. But Uh, then again Al-Shabaab at the moment because it's lost control sort of total control anyway of most towns and cities it's probably less likely that the areas it controls are going to get that affected by coronavirus because they're much more sparsely populated so this might be something that al-Shabaab escapes from and I imagine that if let's say as we've seen already in places like Mogadishu and the capital of the self-declared republic of Somaliland, Hargeisa, there seems to be really quite a lot of coronavirus around al-Shabaab can then sort of fit that into its propaganda because it can say well it's been brought in by foreign forces or somalis who've been in the diaspora which it does seem to be the case at least for now
0: you you recently wrote about the anti corona army what 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 does this look like how how optimistic are you about its efforts to address some of the threats posed by al shabaab
1: Yes, there's, at the moment, there's a lot of effort being put into trying to spread the message about coronavirus, including in, in these very uh, sort of crowded camps for displaced people and elsewhere in, in the population. And you have uh, songs about it, you have comedy sketches about it, you have poems. And then you also have the Somali military and the Somali religious community who've been um, brought in to sort of um, try to spread the word. Like the religious community, they're highly respected by Somalis. They're probably more trusted than uh, the government or uh, people in the military. So some of them have been persuaded or themselves volunteered to spread uh, messages about coronavirus, about hand-washing. and and other kinds of uh, preventative methods. Uh, There has been some controversy about whether uh, mosques can be uh, closed or not. In some areas they are, in other areas they haven't been closed, and that's been a bit of a challenge. And then you have the soldiers and the medics in the army going into camps for the displaced people, uh, distributing face masks, setting up water points where people can wash their hands. And so the... um, that's the kind of word that some of the people I was speaking to were saying that the religious members of the religious community and 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 those in the security forces are forming this kind of coronavirus army to fight the disease
0: and that that's really interesting because I it almost seems like it could have a dual effect in bit improving relations with security forces and the local community as well as stopping the spread of the virus theoretically if things went well
1: yeah um you see in fact in there's I I was sent a whole load of photographs of of the military going around to sort of deprived communities and handing out masks and setting up these hand washing uh, points and it was interesting because even though they're dressed in their military uniform because they were doing something so different uh, it it, it must have given people a different impression because usually people say We're we're more frightened, of, or at least as frightened, of the security forces as we are of al-Shabaab because they exploit us, they try to steal our money, they don't protect us, and so on. And so if they see the military doing, you know, pretty solid, good humanitarian work, um, this might help change attitudes because there is definitely a distrust amongst the population of of the police and uh, the security forces and often not surprisingly because of the way that they behave
0: and has there been a shift in the framing of the problem it's it's much it's not adversarial so has there been a change in the way that the the government and security forces have approached the problem as opposed to the the continued fight against al-Shabaab?
1: Yes, there has. I, I think the Somali government is pretty, um, sort of, it has woken up to, to the issues of coronavirus. And even though it has, let's say, it's got this coronavirus army, as it's being popularly called, uh, it doesn't seem to be going about it in a sort of very heavy heavy-handed way at least in 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 some cases there have been instances where it has been pretty brutal towards people during lockdown but it doesn't seem to have been um it doesn't seem to have adopted a kind of conflict mentality Uh, to to, uh, to coronavirus Uh, even though because that country's been in in the situation of conflict for so long you could imagine that it might be very sort of militaristic in its approach but it doesn't it doesn't seem to be like that.
0: And then and then more broadly we've seen recently that the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called for a global ceasefire in the face of the pandemic will will this happen in Somalia?
1: I don't think so uh Given that Al-Shabaab would see anything coming from the United Nations as, in its view, coming from an apostate uh, infidel. Uh, group, I don't think Al-Shabaab would pay any attention to that whatsoever, because in its eyes, anyone associated with the United Nations, however loosely, is a legitimate target. So Al-Shabaab is not really going to pay attention to any kind of request from the United Nations that it stop fighting. And in fact, I just received a a document uh, about Um, al-Shabaab's activities in recent times. And even though uh, it's facing quite a lot of difficulty in terms of um, the onslaught it's facing uh, from the the military, especially this American-trained force called Danab, which is very elite and goes after al-Shabaab in a more effective way. And then you've got the regional African force, Amazon, plus US airstrikes and other Uh, foreign military assistance. Um, Al-Shabaab has not been able to sort of take large parts of territory. It hasn't been carrying out, at least for now, uh, massive uh, attacks, but it has increased things like assassinations and uh, improvised explosive devices attacks. So it just changes the way it operates, but there's no sign that it's actually calming down and uh, reducing the violence it's just carrying out violence in a slightly different way what
0: what has the response looked like from you mentioned all the different actors at play so we have amazon danab and then the somali government and all the different actors trying to respond both to al Shabaab and to now the spread of a coronavirus and we've we've already seen there's been criticism of the, of the cooperation between international actors in Somalia it it just seems like this is going to be an added complexity when there's already poor coordination and a poor unification of efforts do you, do you see on an in, in terms of the international actors in Somalia do you see anything improving in terms of their efforts and particularly coordination
1: Yeah, I mean, at the moment, I think because of coronavirus, a lot of the internationals are certainly on the humanitarian side just aren't even there. They've had, you know, they've left Somalia. So even though they're trying to do their work remotely from whichever continent they happen to come from, where they're in lockdown, uh, you know, that the fact that they're not there on the ground means that they're going to slightly lose touch with what's happening in Somalia. So I think that's, that is a real problem. And you think Somalia is supposed to be having elections in a few months time. And that, it is highly possible given the role of the United Nations in helping to organise these kinds of um, so-called elections, I prefer to call them selection processes <laughs> I wonder if that's going to be something that that's going to be delayed um, and the government could very easily use coronavirus as an excuse just like the Ethiopians have across the border not to hold elections as scheduled um, in terms of the sort of military picture in Somalia it's already so overcrowded, I suppose, would be a way of describing it. And the fact that you have all these different interest groups coming from all these different kind of backgrounds and philosophies, like you'll have the Turks, the Qataris, the UAE, all those different forces emphasising different parts of the country. Um, Sometimes it's almost like they're carrying out their Conflicts, for example, the tension between Qatar and other Gulf states is being played out in Somalia very clearly. So I don't see that improving. If anything, I think the fact that a lot of the internationals are just not there, they're not going to be able to try and sit down together and um, come up with a coordinated military approach at all at the moment. So that's probably going to make the situation more complicated and it will probably delay things as well in terms of any sort of um, new military architecture that people are uh, wanting to to introduce in Somalia.
0: And so maybe just to to finish on, how optimistic are you about the future of Somalia given all these challenges, given the added pressure of of COVID-19, how optimistic are you about the next few months or years? I I wish I could say
1: that I was optimistic because I feel there are so many things about Somalia that are so great and the people are so dynamic and entrepreneurial and they, they have to take risks because of the situation they live in and it means they really can do the most incredible things with very little in terms of resources, but I do feel in terms of the politics and the conflict, I do not feel optimistic at all. I don't see al-Shabaab going away anytime soon, even though there's more interest, at least from the side of the government and the international community. They're definitely talking more about... uh, recognizing they're going to have to have some kind of negotiations with al-Shabaab. And there's some in al-Shabaab who will do that, but there's the hardcore that will not do that. And they'll probably continue to be a thorn in the side of whatever administration you have. And then you've got the added complication that now you have all these regional states who've got their own armies, who often have incredibly bad relationships with the federal government in Mogadishu, and with each other from time to time. So that's also going to make the situation more complicated. We saw in the southern uh, state, Jubaland, where basically the Kenyans were very, very involved in the situation there um, and and not in in a way that was cooperative with the Somali government. So you've got the neighbors as well, changing politics in Ethiopia. All of that is, I don't think, is going to help Somalia really. and it might actually make things worse. And then, of course, you've got uh, groups like uh, countries like the United States, which has massively intensified its drone campaign in Somalia, to, which has had some success in terms of eliminating leaders. But once you've eliminated one al-Shabaab leader, there's another one waiting in the wings. And it also it does seem to to to, to alienate the local population, because quite often the drone strikes kill civilians. So given that it's just such a complicated situation, and given that so many foreign countries are so entrenched in Somalia, it's, it's very difficult to see how we're going to get a clear picture, a clear trajectory for things to get any better in Somalia, at least for the next few years.
0: I'm so sorry we have to end on such a a pessimistic note but thank you so much that's been so interesting I feel like we covered a lot of ground and in such a, a concise and fascinating way so thank you to Mary for presenting and thank you to our listeners for tuning in We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. For those who want to read in more depth about the topics we covered, we put any links to research or publications we've mentioned in the episode notes, including links to Mary's two books. If you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare program and the Oxford research group's work, please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at @orginfo and @remote_warfare and you can listen to all the previous episodes by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to joining you again soon. Thank you. Bye.